bonjour et bienvenue dans le Echo Indie avec Pierre In each podcast, we'll be looking at a famous economist and asking 10 questions that will hopefully inform you and get you thinking about their influence in modern society today. So, who are we looking at today, Pete? And why is he still so relevant? I should be used to it by now, but there's still a visceral shock every time I hear you take on a new language. I know. I suddenly looked at it again and thought, I have no idea what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> so today, Gavin, we're looking at Leon Valras. Yes, Valras. Or Valras. I don't know. Yeah, Valras. I looked it up. Valras. Valras. And Leon or Leon? I think it's Leon. Leon. Leon Varas. And obviously he's French. That's the he reason, is obviously. French, yeah. Hailed by Joseph Schumpeter as the greatest of all economists. Yeah. I'm sure he said that about Irving Fisher. Greatest American economist. Ah, right, okay. Yeah. So he is famous for formulating, independently of William Stanley Jevons and Carl Manger, the marginal theory of value. Yes. And he also developed general equilibrium theory. Yeah, he's a big beast in the economic world. He is, yeah. This is how he describes himself. So you're going to hear me drawing some French here. Brilliant. So listeners can compare <laughs> and contrast. I'm going to rock out my GCSE French right. here. Je ne suis pas un économiste, je suis un architecte. Mais je sais mieux l'économie politique. Very good. Would you like to translate that? Would I'm you? an economist. I'm a politics person. No. Right. <laughs> I'm not an economist. Oh. I'm an architect. But I still know uh, political economy better. So, cocky. I tell you what, he was a person who thought he was brilliant. Yeah, a little bit thin-skinned as well. Yes. Thought, yeah. We'll get on <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Friedman liked him as well so he says uh, I, so this is Friedman's comment on Schumpeter so he says though I regard as somewhat extravagant Schumpeter's judgment that so far as pure theory is concerned Varas is the greatest of all economists there can be no doubt that the elements is a great work which marked an important step forward in the development of economics as a science and which still plays an important role in economic thinking yes yeah. uh, interestingly he's one of the few uh sort of non-English speaking economists we've looked at and to a certain extent this might explain why he was less well known and he was conscious of that uh, or Valras was conscious of that even in his own lifetime um, so uh, this might be Friedman again actually there's no general history of economic thought in English which devotes no it's not Friedman it's Stigler there's no general history of economic thought in, econo in English which devotes more than passing reference to his work this sort of empty fame in English-speaking countries is, of course, attributable to, in large part to Valras's use of his mother tongue, French, and his depressing array of mathematical formulas. Is that what I said at the end? Yeah. yeah well, I thought, well, I, I could have added that. Well, I don't know if you're going to speak about it, but he basically tried to correspond with everyone, didn't he, yeah. around the area to get in, and it, it did really make me think mm. just how... You know, in order to become a big beast in the economics world, and it probably is it now, you need disciples. Yeah. And ultimately, the only kind of disciple we sort of had was... Pareto? Uh, yeah, Pareto, who yeah, basically Pareto, followed yeah. him in the kind of chair. But, like, that was the thing. He just couldn't get in anywhere, you yeah. know. Yeah, he wasn't a happy chappy, as, as, as we'll go on and see. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, the reason we're covering him, I suppose, is he does make a bit of a breakthrough, as we'll go, as we'll go on and see, a sort of a, a puzzle which economists, going way back to uh, Smith, had puzzled over. Uh, the diamonds versus water paradox. Yes. And also this idea of the, the developing a general equilibrium. So those are the two areas that I'm going to touch upon. Uh, so we'll explain more about what marginal economics is later. Uh, a key part of the A-level course, actually, that we both teach, marginal economics. Yes. Uh, we're also going to look at his development of general equilibrium theory. And we'll mention his views on groping. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it sounds better in French. Tatonement. Tatonement. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So as per usual, uh, we'll talk a little bit about his time and place and his biography. So he's born in 1834 and he lives until 1910. Uh, so he's born in what what I think the French call the long century. In a sense, it's a key period of French history from the French Revolution in 1789 through to the outbreak of uh, World War One in 1914. So he doesn't quite live to... Um, see World War One, uh, but he does live through the Franco-Prussian War, um, which is a key sort of key moment. And to to a certain extent, 19th century France is a time of, uh, you know, political upheaval. You know, you get the end of the Revolutionary Wars, you get the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy, you get the July monarchy. Basically, throughout the century, you get periods where there's a kind of lurch towards more sort of radical uh, government and then a lurch back in the other direction, uh, you know, periods of reaction, if you like. And during the 19th century, France does modernise, but at a much slower rate uh, relative to rivals such as UK and Germany. Because if you look through um, sort of medieval and sort of early modern Europe, France is, you know, the, the dominant power. It's the largest country, has the largest population. But I mentioned the Franco-Prussian War, and to a certain extent that really highlights the relative decline of France as compared with uh, you know, Germany, obviously, uh, but also the UK. Uh, it, it's a real sort of humiliation for France, if you like, and it, it, it's, a, it's a demonstration of French weakness as much of it as it is of uh, sort of German strength. Uh, but just you know, economically, even by 1914, France is producing about a sixth as much coal as Germany and a quarter as much steel. So I suppose you could see see the the point in wanting to be an economist. If you yeah. Like, you know, what's the problem here? Why aren't we sort of thriving in the same way as uh, some of our rivals? You almost see it in population growth as well. You know, the French population only grows by 8.6% between 1871 and 1911. Germany's grows by 60% and Britain's by 54%. Yeah. That's messy. So you almost see the French, to a certain extent, being left behind a little bit in the 19th century. Maybe that's reflected in sort of how, you know, him, he as a French economist is viewed by sort of British economists. Um, maybe, you know, you kind of think, well, you know, you can't be much because, yeah. you know, your country's rubbish. You know, yeah. Here we are with our sort of dynamic economies uh, economists in our dynamic economy who knows yeah so an interesting time in in which to be born um and in, in which to sort of grow up and in which to sort of develop intellectually yeah, i think he didn't he i think um related to that kind of historical uh, time i think he sometimes resisted going full force on some of his economics not to upset the government at the time i think 
Well, you know, again, some people we've not looked at. You've got the the sort of communards. You've got the eighteen forty eight revolution, uh, and I suppose if you were sort of heavily involved in that, it's reading about the communards. You know, obviously, I associate the communards with yeah. sort of don't leave me this way. Nineteen nineties <laughs> band, nineties yeah. band. Yeah, you know, but you know, they're named after Reverend Richard Coles. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Uh, but they're named after, you know, the participants in the Paris Commune and loads of them got deported. Mm. You know, loads of them got executed, deported. Yeah, they've been to the... Because they've got the big uh, grave area, haven't they? Like, the, there's a big thing at no, the famous... What's the famous French? The Père Lachaise? Yeah, I think it's there, yeah. yeah. There's a big yeah. memorial for them. Yeah. It's quite moving. But it's really abysmally, so you could, you could see why, you know, you would almost want to keep your head down to a yeah, certain extent yeah, yeah. in those periods of reaction yeah after some the of his of viewpoints were a bit views. radical yeah yeah we'll, we'll come on to that I mean one thing that his, his views on land and land reform are yeah. really interesting and perhaps something we could cover I'm only going to mention peripherally in this sort mm. of um, podcast because they're not really his ideas uh, they're associated with Georgism yeah did you come across that yes yeah and I think that's a sort of quite a I think land and sort of, you know, the usage of land is, is really interesting. It's almost something that's neglected and it's probably yeah. still more relevant today uh, than we might like. Anyway, we digress. So, But that was linked to his father as well, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, his, his father. father. So yeah. in, to a certain extent, he does inherit a number of his father's views. So we'll come on to his biography. So I've just given you a very sort of brief overview about, you know, the times in which he was born. And certainly it made me want to read more about sort of 19th century French, uh, 19th century sort of France, actually. Um, I've recently listened to a biography of Napoleon, which I really enjoyed by Andrew Roberts. But it's sort of he's more the period after. Right. Uh, a fascinating book, though. Yeah, fascinating. Anyway, <laughs> I definitely am digressing. So he's born in Evreux in Normandy, so northern France, in 1834, the 16th of December, 1834. And he lives uh, into the 20th century, the 5th of January, 1910. He's actually christened. Marie Esprit Léon. Mm. I was thinking, what does that mean, Marie Esprit? Spirit, Mary, Mary Spirit, yeah, or something? Maybe. Yeah. You can see why he just went for Léon. <laughs> yeah, just call me Léon. <laughs> so, a bit like, you know, is it George Osborne? He got rid of Gideon. Yeah. He's originally called Gideon, wasn't George he? George's street name. Yeah. Yeah, so he's like, don't call me Marie Esprit. My mates call me Léon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. He, probably, he probably had like a... Like Indy, Indiana Jones. That's yeah. why he was called Indy, wasn't it, after his dog. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, so, yeah, you mentioned his father. So his father's name is Auguste Valras. So he's born into a petit bourgeois family. Um, so his dad is a school teacher and school inspector. No. He's kind of like, <laughs> he's kind of like an Ofsted inspector. Okay. I hope it's a more respectable profession uh, back then. International listeners may not know Ofsted are, but they're the... Um, schools regulator for England. Schools regulator oh. for England, yeah. 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 So they go into uh, sort of English schools and uh, sort of basically terrify, <laughs> <laughs> terrify teachers and senior leaders. Yeah. And they've been in the news recently, sadly, because uh, a head teacher in England has uh, took her own life after a negative Ofsted inspection. So there was a lot of heat uh, on Ofsted at the moment. But anyway, so Valras is a, um, a French school inspector. 
Um, and it's interesting. I think I've mentioned this before. School, schooling in France it, it, until the sort of like the same as the UK until the mid nineteenth century is quite piecemeal. So in the UK, you only really get compulsory schooling or the guarantee of schooling for all by eighteen seventy, and it's a similar sort of picture in France. Um, but he he is a as well as being a school teacher, he's also a proto marginalist economist. Mm. Yeah. Um, and he uh, is a proponent as well of land nationalisation uh, and very keen on the subjectivist theory of value and the mathemi- mathematization of economics. So basically these are all themes which his son takes up. Uh, so he's not straight away going into economics though. Did you read about this? He was a romance novelist. <laughs> he was, yeah. <laughs> uh, so he had I'm sure li- I hunt that down. I couldn't find it anywhere. No, I, I was I did exactly the same myself. Yeah. Um, so August, uh, you know, makes his convinces his son to give up his literary aspirations, but this is not before he is uh, described as his first steps as a man of letters uh, were a false start. His novel Francis Sauveur, published in eighteen fifty eight. And his short story, La Lettre, together with some unpublished or untraceable essays, can only be considered as tragic. The novel, a sugary, burdensome love story, is preceded by an introduction of 35 pages in fatiguing italics (laughs) devoted to the social question and related topics. Apparently, the author vainly tried to serve two lords at the same time, literature and the social question. I think by the social question, it's kind of like... Why is our society structured such that yeah. loads of people are miserable? But he's almost trying to shoehorn that into a romantic novel. Fair play. Fair well, play. you know you're struggling at the moment. Gavin at the moment is <laughs> is trying to get a, an economics in ten book published. So mm. if there's any listeners out there with sort of <laughs> publishing chops, we'd love to hear from. <laughs> but the feedback, <laughs> the feedback coming back is, you know, who who is this aimed <laughs> exactly? So, for the record, it's a, you know it's an economics yeah. book for, aimed for at young people. for young people pre 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 sort of GCSE sort of yeah. you know eleven or fourteen year olds perhaps you're curious about economics exactly yeah. exactly yeah but your feedback if I'm not mistaken is you know who's this aimed at but you could see this being much more the case with Francis Sauveur as yeah. a novel you know who is that aimed at you know a romantic <laughs> novel <laughs> with a long introduction about. The social question. Have you ever considered writing romantic fiction? I mean, uh, you, do, you do like to write, don't you? N- well, no, well, no, no, okay. no. It's one of the areas I haven't dipped my toes in. Oh. I, might, I write romantic poetry. Of course you do. Yeah. So that's all I need. Yeah. yeah, I feel quite French when I write that. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a bit of stereotype. Um, so in terms of his other sort of uh, false starts, he, he does start studying engineering at the École Nationale Supérieure des Mines de Paris. But he tires yeah. of it. But isn't this the thing, is that even though he's really well known now for his mathematical capabilities, he basically failed two maths exams, didn't he? Yeah. To get into a college before getting into do engineering. Yeah. So this is the thing, is that even though... He is fantastic at maths. He wasn't as good as he would have hoped. Well, maybe not initially. Maybe he worked it. <laughs> Growth mindset. Hey, that's beautiful, Pete. Yeah. Uh, but he tired of engineering. But basically, he worked in various 
He worked as a bank manager at one point, yeah. a journalist, a romantic novelist, a railway clerk, yep. before turning to economics. That's quite a journey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, he spends uh, some unfruitful years in the cooperative movement as well, but by 1870, he is appointed to the Academy of Lausanne. Yes. And this is where he is pretty much forevermore, certainly for the rest yeah. of his uh, sort of career as an academic. And it's here he writes and publishes his magnum opus, The Elements of Pure Economics. Yes. Or should we try again in French? Elements d'économie politique. I don't know how you say pure. Pure? Pure? Just go for it. Just go for it. Just be bold. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell this is your... Yeah. Abroke when you're abroad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Get the guy book out. Yeah. Be shout bold and shout it. it. <laughs> yeah, very British. Um, and what he's famous for is formulating the marginal theory of value, and that's that's sort of in this book that he publishes in 1874. So he's professor of political economy at the University of Lausanne. It's fair to say as well. There's a number of sort of personal tragedies in his life. Mm. He's not, as, I, as we sort of hinted at earlier, he's not a particularly sort of uh, happy chap. Uh, so there's a, it, so someone sort of, his daughter writes to this author about a photo of Valras in 1878. And this is four years after he sort of published his most famous work. He said, this photograph, or she, this is what she says, this photograph always brings to my mind sad memories. My poor mother was very ill at the time. So this is Valras's wife. Her illness lasted three years and her death in 1879 was for her a merciful release. Yeah. The expense was so great that my father's annual salary of 4,000 francs would not cover it. He gave an extra course at Neuchâtel. He gave private lessons and even wrote literary columns over the pseudonym Paul, which were published every fortnight in the Gazette de la Seine. Well, basically, he has a, he has a nervous breakdown shortly after this. Um... And I think that sort of comes and goes uh, from then on. Uh, yeah, he's definitely a changed man. Yeah, uh, was it? He described it as "j'ai la tête très fatiguée." You know, um, yeah, I'm tired. I think the literal translation is like I've had enough tired head or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like people have when they listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say it one more time so yeah. we can get into the "j'ai la tête très fatiguée." Yeah. <laughs> So and he, ta he takes a year off in 1892, this sort of hope that he'll, uh, you know, recover his strength to carry on teaching. Because um, he's a conscientious teacher and, he, you know, he doesn't sort of like to, um, you know, not, not, not act as he has done formally. But eventually he, he sees it as hopeless and resigns uh, definitively. Yeah. So it's quite sad towards the end of his life... Uh, He's, you know, he's, he's lonely, he's sort of bitter at the neglect of his work. There's quite a few quotes about, about that. Increasingly senile and suffering from mental illness. So quite a sad end to his life. And he dies in 1910. Yeah. So was there anything else you wanted to say in terms of his biography? I struggled a little bit. No, I thought it was interesting. I mean, I think there's some... He says his last writings came in, like, 1909. And, mm. and there's, a bit, there's a bit where... Uh, what is it? Um, a delegation of foreign economists came to Clarence, a small town near Lausanne, to which Rowers had retired in 1901 to pay their respects. They had to inquire where they, his way to his modest flat. A townsman who had not at first caught his name replied, 
Ah, you mean the old professor who is continually reading his own books and looking for his mistakes. Oh, God. He, he remained a scholar and a scientist to the end. And then, yeah. yeah. He died, what was it, only six months after the University of Lausanne. It's Lausanne? How do you say it? I think it's Lausanne. Lausanne. Yeah, had celebrated the jubilee of his service to economics. Yeah. So there you go. Apparently he was writing a, a biography. Mm. So and this oh yeah this is it this uh, well you can we do have you done have you got quotes coming no no you go for it he says uh, when uh, words uh, the only immortality left for us to hope for is that our own work we must labour and enjoy the success of our labour by anticipation this is the secret of morality and the secret of happiness this mm. is why I always go on about Pete what to achieve immortality is the work that we leave behind. Right, okay. These podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Our books. Yeah, in a hundred years' time. Yeah, exactly. But can I just say, yeah. there's a bit, there's a thing, one of his characters in France, was it Francis Sauveur? Francis Sauveur. Okay, cries out, Since the world has won a victory over me, I'm going to retire to a place of solitude where the world cannot reach me and where I can remain faithful to my dream. Oh, and, and he did that. Yeah. So there you go. It doesn't sound like a path to happiness though, yeah it? but he's, he's, what I do find fascinating and are you about to go on to the actual economics I am is that he was trying and I think this is so ironic because last time we were talking about um, Herman Daly yeah. struggling to get into journals mm -hmm. wasn't he because he's an environmental economist everyone's mm -hmm. turning around and saying mate we're not interested yeah yeah, we want the science, mathematics whatever yeah. he was trying to get into French economic journals yeah, yeah. and we're turning around and saying what's all this math yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, but what it shows doesn't it is this kind of the fashion in economics yeah. and I think what we're trying to do with that podcast <laughs> is that just, just to show ultimately that you know why why you need a bit of everything don't you this mm. is the point isn't it I think of, of the mm. diversity within economics mm. you know and what we seem to do is like right this is what's in vogue and we're not going to now listen to any outside voices and then mm. suddenly something changes and it's like now we should and it's like why can't we just have an economic world of yeah. embracing all these different ideas and mm. like learning through them and you know, like we talk about in a lesson, you have your economics toolkit, don't you? Mm. And you say, right, for this problem, I'm going to use my Herman Daly toolkit. Mm. For this lesson, I'm going to use my Freeman toolkit. For mm. the, you know, and for some reason, mm. mainstream economics a lot of time yeah, doesn't really want that. People like a kind of ideological purity, don't they? Like, yeah, uh, I think that that's the thing. There's been some research that came out the other day about that with Harjun Chang um, and another man talking about ideology... Um, and statements and depending on who said it whether you agreed with it mm, and mm. just based on your kind of ideology and they with, with economists mm. and it was the biases were just all there yeah. you know that came out but yeah, uh, yeah there's, it, it was interesting so yeah so you said sorry I've got it here um, the as an academic chair in France this was uh, impossible for he stood outside the charmed circle of those who were content to sing unmitigated praises of the existing social order the official French economists of that epoch formed a close corporation made up of worthy individuals who were interested in economics as a branch of politics mm. and not as a branch of science. Since this same group also controlled the economic journals, Varus soon found himself excluded from this avenue of expression. Mm. There you go. 
Well, you feel a little bit sorry for him. Why not? Yeah. yeah. But this is the thing is, though, when he was writing to all these English economists, yeah. you know, basically saying, I don't know if you've seen this, and they're like, oh, well, how come you do And like, they're in these kind of is arguments. He, is he writing in French? <laughs> yeah, you know. And it, but he's also <laughs> trying to contact um, Fisher as well. Mm. And then he's mm. also criticising their work because he, he hated the Edgeworth box or something. Right, to come yeah. across that. And there's all these things that he kind of ate. And then Marshall pops up quite a lot. Because Marshall is fascinating, and I, I think I remember it a little bit from when we did the podcast. Mm. He never releases anything mm. for public scrutiny. Mm. So what that means is that when someone does release something, he basically goes, "I've already done that. <laughs> I've already done that. I've got it in my private papers." <laughs> and so they're fuming, like yeah. he's fuming with Marshall, and it's it's like this brilliant kind of you know arguments mm. being had through. It's like um, Twitter. But you can just imagine it with the flurry of letters. Yeah. <laughs> imagine those not, dudes on Twitter now. It would have been like, like kicking off on Twitter, is it? I mean, it, it's no, not that instant sort of. No, I know it's not. That's my point, though. You, you had to wait for response for that. Yeah. I know, but there was they were very <laughs> at each other, and I find that interesting. Anyway, yeah, crack on. Yeah, what what is interesting just to. to you were talking about all the sort of different economists he was writing to and so on is they did independently develop some very similar ideas which yeah. I always think is interesting we talked about yeah, it didn't we yeah, um, talk about a couple it. of yeah. sessions season, uh, episodes ago I think yeah so shall we move on and talk about his ideas they're the kind of these ideas are in the air they? they are in the air yeah, yeah a bit like with um, I think we compared it Darwin and uh, Russell Wallace yeah. you know both yeah. independently yeah. developing the sort of theory of evolution well and you can yeah. see it because I mean I know we talked a lot, I think, about Fisher and 100% money or whatever. It yeah. Varus is a 100% money guy as well. He's mm-hmm. another one of these dudes. Yeah. So they're all, again, popping up at, the, at similar times. Mm. key ideas probably the first thing we should explain is something very simple because we're talking about marginal economics what do we mean by the margin um, so in essence what we're talking about here is this sort of additional unit of a product for example so we talk about marginal costs so to produce one more unit of a product how much does it cost it's not the same as the average it's just for that one more mm. what does that add to costs and obviously there is a relation between the sort of um, margins and averages um, you know if, you, if your margin is bigger than the existing average it will make, bring the average up if the margin is smaller than the existing average it will bring the average down but there's lots of applications of this idea of, of a margin we talk about marginal tax rates as well for the next pound that you earn yeah. What, what rate will you be taxed at? Um, yeah. So 
because there's all kinds of sort of misunderstandings about sort of taxation. But perhaps the most important application relates to marginal utility. Now, utility is a really interesting concept in economics because it's bandied around an awful lot. But I think it's sort of is one of the roots of why economics ultimately is a little bit of a pseudoscience. Because you talk about marginal utility, but there aren't actually any units. Yeah for utility yeah. but as a concept it's a, I'm sort of digressing slightly it's probably um, the best way I always think of explaining it is like this is why all you can eat buffets work yeah. it's related to the concept of marginal utility so let's say you go into an all you eat all you can eat pizza sort of place so the first slice of pizza you're really hungry it's marvellous so you might think, oh, you know, that's... Give it 10 utils. Give it 10 utils, which is not a thing, but yeah. So the <laughs> next one, not bad. You know, you think, oh, I'm still enjoying this. It's delicious, isn't it? You know, maybe nine. By the time you get to the eighth, there's been, dim- there is diminishing marginal utility. You can barely fit it in. You've hit that kind of Mr. Creosote moment yeah. where it's no longer pleasurable. So... Marginal utility is a key concept in helping to resolve um, a puzzle which Adam Smith uh, had originally uh, come up with, uh, which is the diamond and water paradox. So back in Smith's time, they didn't really use the word price. There was this word value and it was bandied around sort of quite loosely. Had a sort of almost ethical tinge to it, almost or the value of something, but they didn't use price, you know, in the way that we would use it today. You know, the the equilibrium price that that was not uh, language that was used. And in fact, Smith talked about value in two ways. He said there's value in use, and there's value in exchange. And I guess value in exchange is what we would call price. So within that that sort of language of value in use, value in exchange. He talked about the paradox of sort of diamonds versus water. You know, nothing is more useful than water, but it will purchase scarcely anything and scarce scarce anything can be had in exchange for it. A diamond, on the contrary, has scarce any value in use, but a very great quantity of other goods may frequently be had in exchange for it. So marginal utility, to a certain extent, helps us explain that. If it was your first sort of glass of water after you've walked across the desert, it would be extremely valuable. Yeah. You'd probably pay all the diamonds <clears throat> in the world for it. But because a water is not scarce and you can consume as much as you want, then it's not going to have a great deal of sort of marginal utility. And therefore that redu- reduces the sort of value in exchange, as it were. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the, the, the sheer rarity of diamonds will increase sort of their value in, in exchange. So marginal utility is perhaps at the root of uh, which uh, Valras and others like uh, Menger and Jevons developed independently. But this idea of marginal economics helps better explain that and really sort of modernizes, you know, moves us towards this idea of price, which is then formulated uh, in a much more um, sort of familiar way to us, at least in the works of people like Marshall. Yeah. Yeah. This is a marginal revolution, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So marginal revolution. And really what you're looking at to a large degree, and this is why I guess people like Friedman sort of were, you know, rated Valras, 
was that it moves economics towards a more scientific footing. Now, you could argue, and I think I would argue, that this is a major false turn. Because in a sense, um, moving economics away from its roots within politics, the sort of political economy, the sort of ethical dimension, which is very much within uh, where, you know, Smith's world, if you like, oh, no, let's take it out of that and almost look at it in some sort of abstract way uh, using fairly abstract mathematics, I would say is, is, is a bit of a wrong turn. But you can see why, you know, people loved it. You know, we've now really got a set of tools that we can use uh, to begin to develop a science of economics, if you like, which will hopefully put us on a par with, you know, physics, with chemistry and so on. And Valras is definitely one of the, the people who breaks new ground uh, there. So... In a sense, what he's developing is a definition of economic utility, which is very much based on economic value as opposed to any sort of ethical, sort of woolly theory of value. So he's moving us towards uh, this idea of price, which we'll see formulated much uh, more clearly, perhaps with Marshall. Um, But answering that sort of problem, which Smith had developed, so, you know, clever stuff. There's no doubt about that. Um, The impression I got as well with regards to the marginal theory of value is <clears throat> I don't know whether he was the first person who came up to it but I got the impression it, he was but I might be wrong that where is the utility in capital goods mm. you know in this regards mm-hmm. you know because it's not like oh I want to buy a truck you know yeah. but he uh, developed the idea of derived demand mm-hmm. linked to that do you get the Do you get the impression he was the first person to sort of come up derived demand? I'm not sure, but it's certainly in the same. Yeah, because it area. solves that issue. It's like, well, you know, why do you value these trucks? Mm-hmm. Because we have the marginal theory of value for diamonds, and yeah. so therefore that the thing trucks could help the fetch the diamonds. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So derived demand. I mean, again, if students are doing that, hopefully you'll understand what derived demand is. Yeah. So that's sort of one area, and you know, and a really important area, this sort of development of marginal thinking. And it definitely feeds into sort of, you know, economics 101, A-level economics, whatever you want to call it, where you start to see people modelling in the theory of the firm uh, the interaction of marginal cost and marginal revenue uh, yeah. being the point at which firms sort of maximise uh, their profits yeah, yeah, yeah. and all of that can be linked back to these initial yeah. breakthroughs in terms of understanding uh, how margins work you know the you know the application of marginal thinking uh, to key metrics like costs and revenues and so on yeah starts with Valras yeah so he's one of these you know that Keynes quote about we are the slaves of dead economi- uh, dead economists. Yeah, he's uh, certainly one of those he's, uh, dead economists. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and as as I said, people like Marshall probably develop these into theories which are more familiar to us. You yeah. know, your sort of supply and demand curves and so on. Um, the other thing that he's associated with um, is almost in contrast to Marshall. If you look at Marshall where he's looking at um, supply and demand in individual markets, you could describe that as a kind of partial analysis. 
So we could look at the price of apples and how that's determined by the supply of apples and the demand for apples. And we could look at all the factors which determine the supply of apples and all the factors which determine the demand. And then they interact, you come to a market clearing price and there we are. We've got a solution within that market at least uh, to this basic economic problem. Yeah, we, we, we get to a point where yeah. within that market, economic welfare is maximised. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, market clearing price. We got it. The market clearing price. Yeah, yeah. good. So that's where you maximise consumer welfare. For A level students, this is where producer and consumer allocative efficiency are maximised. Yeah, allocative efficiency. But in a sense, Valras's project is much more ambitious than that. Yeah, you say, well, look, that is a partial analysis, and we probably know even from sort of fairly sort of elementary studies in economics that markets are related to each other. To take a couple of simple examples, which most A-level students will be familiar with, um, the price of substitute goods affects the price of a good. So for example, uh, let's say Samsung smartphones and Apple iPhones, there is a relationship between those two markets. If the price of Samsung's with a similar sort of functionality, if you like, is much cheaper than Apple, then that will affect the demand for apples, so their substitutes. So we could debate the closeness of their substitutes and so on, but to a degree they are substitutes. So they will have a cross-elasticity of demand. So we're aware there that there is a relationship between two markets. And similarly, we have complements, goods which are typically bought together. So tennis balls and tennis rackets. If for whatever reason the price of tennis balls went up, it maybe would price people out. If, oh, you know, if tennis has become an expensive sport, we can't afford the balls anymore, so the demand for rackets will go down. Fish and chips, yeah? Yeah. Buy fish and chips. If the price of fish really went up, people couldn't go to the, the chippy and buy their fish with their chips. Yeah. They might think, you know, demand for chips would go down. So again, we're looking there at two markets which are interlinked with each other. And there are other linkages we could talk about, like joint demand, joint supply, yeah. or... Um, all these sort of different uh, ways in which one market might affect another. Now, Valras is much more ambitious than that. He's trying to come up with a sort of model of the economy which allows one to look at the interaction between all markets within the other within the economy uh, and come to a, a general equilibrium. Yeah. yeah, big big project. Big big projects. Yeah. Well, and the maths behind it was. Yeah, complex sort of mathematical yeah. modelling, you know, equations linked to other equations and so on. Uh, so that's his ambition. And like all these sort of models of the economy, it does involve a, a, a large range of assumptions, which one might be critical of. Yeah. Um, and certainly, just to give you one, I did say I'd mention groping. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the things he did uh, as part of his sort of theoretical modelling was to say we, we need to simulate an artificial market process to show how the system will get towards equilibrium and he calls that tatonomon which is the French for groping yeah. yeah so it's a kind of trial and error process so in his sort of uh, sort of thought experiment if you like a price is called out and people in the market said how much they're willing to demand or supply at mm. that price um if there's an excess of supply over demand, the price will be lowered, you know, and vice versa if there's an excess of uh, sort of demand over supply. But eventually they'll keep, the price will, they'll grope towards yeah, an equilibrium, the equilibrium until the two but, are yeah. finally reached. Um, 
But the no. odd thing about that is no trade occurs no. <laughs> before they reach the equilibrium <laughs> price. So, yeah, there's an assumption, which is a highly unrealistic assumption, that no exchanges are made until equilibrium is reached. Yeah. Um, and like all these sort of, you know, more ambitious models in economics, there's a whole range of assumptions that underpin it, which you think, really? Yeah. You know, you're explaining away, actually... The detail, which is what makes yeah, I'm going to come in and defend Valrus in a minute. Go on then. Go no, on. no, well, you carry on. Or yeah. is there any more? Because he said the same, didn't he? He said it's all based around markets that were in like perfect competition as well. Didn't he? Yeah, and perfect competition, as we we've touched upon in previous podcasts, has a whole range of assumptions yeah. which are sort of fairly unrealistic. Yeah, it sort of did make me think when he's talking about that Tatanamon. It's almost a little bit. Like an old school stock market before yeah. sort of big bang, you know, everyone's yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of well, we yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, yeah. well, not quite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's almost what it's, it's like old farmers markets and then back ba- ba- in the day it kind of was like that, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. so you're getting working all that way to Yeah, the possibly. Price. Yeah. But there you go. Yeah. So you can see it's a hugely ambitious project. It's been taken up by economists in more recent times. Yeah, he never way. fully... He he did the... F- he basically got the structure in place, didn't he? But he didn't actually do the maths. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people like Arrow. Yeah, they're the uh, ones... Uh, Debrou. Debrou uh, have, have sort of picked this up in more yeah. sort of recent times. And actually have, actually have come up with the actual maths yeah. to support it all, haven't they? Yeah. So... I think the sort of marginal breakthrough plus this sort of an attempt at general equilibrium uh, are the two ideas I wanted to talk about. Right. One which he, he is peripherally associated with, and it's not really his idea, but I would like to discuss in another podcast is Georgism, yeah, uh, which is all about sort of uh, land. Well, uh, I'm going to talk about that now. Right now. Oh, are you? Yeah. Okay, go on then. Unless you want to. No, no, no. Well, this is, this is the thing, right? When he wrote his books... Yeah. And when um, Schum, Schumpeter, Schumpeter yeah. and a lot of these dudes go on about what a brilliant economist he is, yeah. he wrote three books, didn't he? Mm. He wrote Pure Economics, and then he wrote an Applied Economics, and then he wrote basically an Ethics Economics book. Mm-hmm. And these economists <laughs> kind of thought of the other two yeah. as like, what's all this about? yeah. And just focused on the pure economics, which is the maths, the marginal, the you know the stuff we've just looked at, the general yeah, economy, yeah. Well, the stuff they liked. Yeah, and Valras <laughs> was all like, no, these three books are, uh, this is what I got anyway, the, the heart of me. Mm. And there was an understanding that when you apply this stuff, mm. it falls apart because he understood that there wasn't perfect competition in markets. And so governments had to do something about it and kind of linking back to the cooperative mm. movement, mm. you know, that he was very supportive of and that kind of stuff. And the kind of ethical nature of him yeah. was this kind of appreciation that, um, you know, if you wanted to, you know, let people kind of set up businesses and do whatever they want, then don't tax them on their income, their profits or whatever, 
allow the government to own the land because this is the argument isn't it land the walruses argued belongs to society and by its nature and origin constitutes legitimate property of none other than the state so basically they own all the land and then through basically renting the land Mm -hmm. they then felt didn't they that um, they wouldn't need any other taxes Mm. because land was always going to be mm. scarce and so the value of it was always going to go up and it was always going to give the government enough money now I know obviously that probably isn't true but the idea of that mm. is like right you now have freedom to kind of create these competitive markets and do whatever mm. you need to do in order for these mm. systems to work mm. that's the impression but I just think the Schumpeters of this world and the people who now look at him the kind of mass dudes of this world mm just look at his pure work mm. and forget about his sort of mm. socialist side yeah. in many respects. Yeah, so Georgism is basically a movement against you know the economic rent derived from land. And land is sort of meant in the broader sense all natural resources. It's almost like that none of that should be owned by individuals. Yeah, all nationalised. Yeah, it should be. Yeah. So all land, in effect, should be nationalised. And in fact, ironically, there are people like uh, Friedman even who would say, look, if you're going to apply taxes, at least taxes on land don't cause economic inefficiency, unlike other taxes. But it's interesting, isn't it? I wonder what, what, the, what the economic miracle that everyone goes on about. Harjun Chang talked about this, didn't he? Mm-hmm. That everyone looks to look at Singapore as a economic miracle, fast growth, all this kind of stuff like that. And then he turns around and says, you know, that's seen as a free market economy. And then he reveals 93% of property is owned by the government or something. You know, and this is the thing is that they allow within that framework individuals to thrive and survive. But the foundations of it is government owning nearly... Yeah. Most of the land and the property yeah. or whatever, you know, not property, but you know, that kind of stuff. So it's it's really interesting, again, that picking and choosing of what... You can understand why people of who want, who want economics to be a science yeah. to just stick purely on his pure and disregard his other two books. Yeah. There yeah. you go. So that I felt a little bit sorry for him, really. Yeah. I think we should look at georgism and just the sort of economics of land and a bit more in a future podcast well i mean land interesting land value tax is is something that has been suggested a number of times i think by like the the liberal party yeah yeah. you know and it's 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 a one that kind of comes round and round again you know about about doing that but you're right maybe for another time yeah i think it's a broader topic yeah and probably you know one which we would want to attribute to someone else perhaps yeah yeah, maybe. Yeah. But he was big <laughs> on the idea and I liked it. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Is that it? I think so, yeah. Yeah? I think so. Okay. So, uh, what do the critics say about him, Pete? Well, he was quite sensitive to criticism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's an essay by some chap called Donald Walker. He says, the fact is Valras grew hypersensitive about the motives of his critic. Uh, the failure of the majority of economists to recognise the value and priority of his contributions and the possibility of plagiarism of his ideas during the 1980s and 1990s. So it's quite sad, really. You do get a sense of almost this concern about his public 
um, image contributing or being interweaved with his mental health issues, you know, yeah. which is quite yeah, sad, really. Sad. Isn't it? But it shows, I mean, in many respects, I mean, I've been teaching obviously in PSHRE mental health this week, and you know, again, that's that kind of thing, isn't it? We've moved on in many respects, haven't we, yeah. in terms of the conversation that we have about mental health? Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of technical criticisms by other people working in the same area. Oh, you didn't do that, you didn't do this. And obviously, more modern economists have tried to, you know, develop his theories in a sort of more sort of modern mathematical way. I suppose for me, in terms of criticisms, you could just say, what is the point? You know, for me, <laughs> I, I kind of think this is the worst kind of economics. And, and where, where we I think We should it, probably hold up our our kind of biases here though because we are both probably from an angle of the more philosophical political, political economy. economy no it is and this thing of mass capturing economics is something that we yeah. probably don't like yeah I mean I guess it's a desire amongst the profession generally to pretend that economists econ- economics can be like the natural science there's a sort of um, an ambition in physics to develop a, what's the word for it, a general sort of universal theory yeah. in which you bring together kind of subatomic physics you know like your quarks and what have you with like forces and stuff like that in one sort of general theory um, and to a certain extent I'm being kind here you could see this as analogous to the kind of Valras general equilibrium project yeah. because in a sense you're trying to almost form the macroeconomy from its microeconomic elements, you know. So uh, maybe there's an analogy there. And you can see it's a sort of, there's an intellectual ambition there, but for me it is fundamentally useless. I mean, what, what is the point of it? What is it going to allow you to do? Um, I think we probably need to be more honest and just think that in economics that there isn't going to be like a, a machine which is going to allow us to, you know, model the economy. And that's, in a sense, what is being sort of drained. I mean, and people do try and do it all the time, don't they? I mean, we get all these predictions all the time, like the Office for Budget Responsibility in the UK or the Bank of England, inflation's going to go down and then, oh, it's gone up again. Exactly. Uh, We come back to the Queen quote, don't we? Oh, why didn't you see it coming? (laughs) (laughs) But in a sense, maybe we just need to be humble and appreciate that, maybe we can make partial analyses work or we can yeah. say this is the more likely thing to happen but it's just almost the economy is just far too anarchic for want of a better word yeah. to well because it involves humans yeah and it's not like physics where you know a quark is not yeah. going to think oh, they've called me a quark I'm, I'm not going to do my quark <laughs> thing anymore you know? yeah yeah uh, so, I mean, in some respects, I think this area of economics is almost like medieval theology. It's just sort of just useless. Well, you know, this it's is, like speculating this, about how many angels can dance very on the rare head of a pin. It's yeah. very rare that w- we are the critics here. <laughs> Normally we're, we're, we're picking out names to support our, our uh, thing here, but you've just gone on, yeah. the, on the attack. No, I, I, don't blame, I don't blame Valorous Royce. This is the point I'm saying. I don't blame Valorous Royce. No, no, no. This, the pure economic stuff, the math stuff, yeah. is stuff he was doing, I think, to show his intellectual capabilities. Yeah. But it was the applied and the ethics stuff that gets completely forgotten about yeah. where I think his true heart is. Yeah. So suppose, I'm, I'm yeah. for Valorous here. Okay, yeah, good. I can see that. I like, yeah. I like the cut of your jib. 
I think the reason I'm passionate about this is this is kind of you end up learning stuff like this about university <laughs> and loads of very complex maths which gives a kind of veneer of intellectual distinction to what is it basically quite ill-informed assumptions about human nature and I, and I know this is changing but probably not fast enough you know right. and but what that does is it it kind of disempowers people you know like oh yeah economics is pretty complicated and I couldn't possibly understand it therefore they're, they're almost disempowered from the political process as well and I just find that a bit depressing yeah well, but I can't blame Paul th- 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 right. thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> I mean you put a lot on his shoulders there I know it's uh, I'm it's trying to shield him I'm trying to shield yeah. him I've had a tough week yeah <laughs> that's the key that's the key is that the end that's the end that's the end of Pete's rant <laughs> okay food time what are we eating today, Pete? There's a spurious link with Varas. Well, we're going to Normandy. Yes. Yeah? It's renowned for its andouillette d'Alençon. All right. Uh, de Rouen. Escalope à la Normande. Right. So all these beautiful French dishes. Mussels à la crème. Lovely. Yeah, have you ever had that? Um, what was that? Mussels and cream. cream yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know what? And we I think that's that kind of sausage which tastes of poo. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, don't, I don't really know. Yeah, I think it is. And <laughs> I tried it once. I you know you want to sort of, oh, I'll try the local thing in a restaurant. Oh, right. hey, this tastes disgusting. The reason why I thought of this is I was listening to Sandy Tucci's sort of oh, yeah. uh, kind of food biography, if you like, taste. And he talked about going in there with some of his sort of actor and f- acting friends, and they go in a sort of restaurant in Normandy and they try this, and then they're all like <laughs> spitting it out. And he's a real gourmand, uh, but I'm pretty sure that's that's Andouille. I might be wrong. Uh, How do you spell it? A N D O U I double Okay, but we're not going to have any of that. Right. Or camembert. I do like a camembert. Yes, I yeah, like also that. From that camembert. Kind of word. And obviously, the reason we're, we're going to Normandy is Evreux is in Normandy where uh, Varas was born. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, right, good. I'm glad you told yeah. the link. Yeah, we could have gone for some sort of Swiss thing if he's in yeah. Lausanne, but, you know, I'm going back to his roots. Yeah, why not? But particularly with the thing I'm choosing to make you, because I think it's a kind of comforting dish. Yeah, it's called Turgoul. I'm really looking forward to it. It's kind of like a French rice pudding. Um, yeah. Maybe not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> do you like rice pudding? Yeah, I do like rice pudding. Well, you'll you'll love this then. Right, so I'll go off and fetch that. And uh, I imagine it'd be nice with a little dessert wine. But um, yeah, I'll go and grab some now. So Gavin is now yeah. tucking into his turgoul. Yeah. Oh, wait, it tastes like a stodgy rice pudding. Tastes like what? Like a stodgy rice pudding. Stodgy? Well, you know. All right. Nice. I like, you know, a rice pudding. Mm. Although, to be honest, probably the English way, have a little bit of jam. <laughs> Do you have jam in your rice pudding? I've never really got into rice pudding. I quite like this, though. Yeah, it's nice. What, what's it? Okay, tell us about it. Well, it's very, very simple. Yeah. You cook Is it a classic French recipe? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, you can buy it in markets in Normandy. Right, like go on. Fast sort of... Uh... Like fast food? Yeah. Yeah, you would go and get some. Yeah, yeah go on then. Yeah, so you get just rice, butter... Mixed together. Jersey milk. I don't know how French that is. Alright. Uh, shed loads of sugar. Yeah. And then uh, cinnamon and vanilla. Can you taste the cinnamon and vanilla? Yeah. It's not healthy then. Well, not going to do wonders to your gout. No. <laughs> well, 
thank you for that. It tastes delicious. But while we're eating it, let's have a quiz. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, do you know what uh, numismatic means? Numismatic? Yeah. Is that to do with the study of coins? Well done. Have I said it right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, collecting coins, basically. Mm. And um, one of the things Varus did when he was whiling away his last few years was get very into collecting coins. I'd quite like to collect coins. Well, didn't I tell you about my granddad had a load of coins in the loft and ended up flogging them at my mm. auction and one of them went for about £1,000. Wow, what was it? I don't know. It was this kind of American dime from like years ago, basically, or something like that. Anyway, uh, here we go. Question one. That wasn't a question, by the way. Numismatic. No. Okay. All right. No, it was very good, though. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Let's hope you get some of these answers. It's not multiple choice. Oh, no. Okay. Which British coin was introduced in February 1971 and withdrawn from circulation in December 1984? Um, Halfpence. Correct. Thank you. Halfpenny. 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 True or false? Two 1p coins weigh the same as one 2p coin. And two 5p coins weigh the same as one 10p coin. I'm going to say that's false. True. What was it? Yeah, I found that out. I was amazed. And you know what? I told that to my students at school. I said, you never guess what I found out the other day in prep for this podcast. And I went, said exactly what I just said. And they all looked at me and went, yeah, we know that. Oh, I didn't know that. And I thought, he didn't. I thought, you know, it's the classic bravado of you. I feel a bit stupid now. <laughs> Question <laughs> In which country would you spend the loony? How do you spell it? L-O-O-N-I-E. A gold-coloured coin showing a common loon, a bird found throughout this country. Loon. That's a tough question. Is this historic or is it current? No, I think it, Well, I don't know. I think it's current. Okay. Uh... A loony. Should I tell you that? Finland? Oh, that was me being mildly American. But it was Canada. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. right. Which European city was the first city to mint its own gold coins in 1252? Hmm. I um, thought from a historical perspective you'd like this question. 1252? Yeah. European city. First city to mint its own gold Florence. coins. Florence. Smashed right. it, yes. Yeah, is that the florin? Yeah, very good. Mm. Right, two out of four. Come on, make it. Yeah, this is yours. <laughs> okay, where exactly was the Royal Mint established in 886 AD, where it remained and operated for approximately 800 years? Ooh. Well, 886 AD. That is the period of a sort of Anglo-Saxon it's where the country divided in two between the Anglo-Saxons and the Danes uh, I'm going to say Winchester oh, no, it's a specific place what? what? Like a, Winchester not like a specific a, place like a building a building in Winchester? no it's not in Winchester <laughs> 
the Royal Mint? Yeah, Royal Mint. Oh. Where was it? I thought you were saying, where is the Royal Mint? No, no, it was, it was sorry. It, it operated, it was established in the Tower of London. Oh, right. Yeah, so there you go. Well, you got two out of five. I'm very good, is it? That's all right. I think it's quite a tough, tough, um, uh, tough question. Anyway. Thanks. Um, well played. That's the end of the quiz. Two out of five. And we've had the food. And it was um, delish, if you like rice pudding. Good. I mean, I would have liked a little bit of jam. Yeah. Um, I don't think a French would approve French of love jam, though, don't they? Do they? Yeah. They'd probably call it compote. Uh, what's the um, <laughs> famous jam that comes from there? Uh, famous French jam? I don't know. Yeah, it's sold in the supermarket. Oh, anyway. <laughs> Everyone is always interested in who the next Bond is going to be. And we thought it might be fun to think... I mean, we've been doing this question for a while now. I thought by now the new Bond would have been announced. Yeah. I'm waiting for it to be announced and we can get rid of this question. <laughs> I do think we need a new rounder. Yeah, no, I think that as Bring well. Bring back Star Wars. <laughs> but, it's no, quite a limiting question. You know? I know, but why, why have they not... I mean, I've I envisioned this that they, by now we'd know who the new Bond was. And so, it still hasn't been claimed. So what James Bond or Bond villain would he be? I mean, the thing yeah. is, yes, don't be too jingoistic. Yeah. I don't think you can get someone French to play James Bond. Mm. Controversial. Do you? I don't think he's nasty enough to be a villain either. Yeah. He's pretty miserable, isn't he? Yeah. I reckon he could be a villain. Could he? Yeah, he hates yeah. the English. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I think he's he'd be He's bitter and twisted in terms of he can't... Get, he's alienated by society. I could see him hatching a plot to kill Jevons. Yeah, and he'd be stroking his big long beard. Yeah, and yeah, I could see him being a proper villain. I don't think he's in. I just don't think he's sort of. Who is the latest French villain? Like Le, 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 Le Chief. Yeah. All right. Well, I can't think of anyone else. So <laughs> Le Chief. That will do. Right. Hopefully by season seven. <laughs> They would have come up with a new Bond. Um, On that note, by the way, we probably should say, shouldn't we, if people do, would like to suggest a a new question. Yeah. We'd very much like to hear from them. We very much would. Uh, What books would you recommend if people wanted to learn more about Varas and his ideas? Now, there is a chap called Jaffe who has translated his work. Not until the 1950s. And, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier about perhaps he wasn't as influential because his books were written in French um, I did find this really basically Jaffe translated him but then so, uh, Walker and Dahl translated him later and they were very critical of Jaffe they said his translation of the word creur was a momentous error that has misled generations of readers really? wow. so I obviously had no idea what they were talking about yeah. so I, I just put uh, creur in Google Translate and it said screamer. <laughs> so I was just thinking, what's the context no, for that? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't, for me, a screamer means a long-range shot in football that goes <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's other connotations as well. But, uh. mm. Right, so <laughs> what have you got? What have you said there? Uh, this, basically, William Jaff, though. Yeah, yeah, he's, is, he's is the, the man, dude, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, you man. can go online and you can find this brilliant free book where William Jaff basically does an autobiography yeah. and he does loads of translation of the stuff that he does it's kind of critical of him as well and you can yeah. find all his stuff on JSTOR J is that all yeah. right yeah yeah so very good uh, anything else uh, I think 
Not that I'm, well, I think Kenneth Arrow is a more recent attempt to develop general equilibrium theory. Do you know what? I did read a little about him. He sounds like a really interesting chap. Right. Bit of a genius. I think he's someone we should come back to. Yeah. There's quite a number of YouTube clips which probably explain general equilibrium theory more uh, succinctly right. <laughs> and accurately than, than I did. Yeah. You do wonder about when we do tra- when you do get sort of translations from one language yeah. into another with economics, like do things get lost? You yeah. know, like you know, Marx is obviously didn't sort of write in English. You yeah. know, the bits of Marx. So. Well, we talked about that at the time that Jenny was the only one who could read his yeah. writing, so it could yeah. have even got lost in translation yeah. straight away. Yeah, you know the famous Robert Frost quote: "No poetry is what is lost in translation." Beautiful. Yeah, and there was a film lost in translation by who? Uh, Sophia Coppola very good well, I wish that would have been in the quiz <laughs> <laughs> right well there you go well I've got I mean there is one of these you know like the big kind of the, it's called the economics book by yeah. DK yeah. actually you know I kind of tweeted about this I'm always surprised how good that book is sometimes mm. and, and the Valorous stuff actually was really really good yeah. so as a very nice two page or three page on general equilibrium theory I thought it was very good good okay if Valorous was a boxer, what would his walk-on music be and why? Well, there has never been a more obvious choice yeah. for me. Yeah, I'm hoping we're on the same hymn sheet here. I am the walrus? Yes! <laughs> I did think, after that, I mean, I tweeted this I am the, the walrus. Cuckoo-cuchu. <laughs> and that would be his nickname, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Cuckoo-chi- Cuckoo. Or whatever. Cuckoo. <laughs> Like a boxing walk on. No, exactly. I am here, you are. And he's like strolling in. Come yeah. on, come on, son. Come on, Jevons. Yeah, he's exactly. calling you out. <laughs> yeah, he's exactly. Anbenga. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Yeah. So, yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah, perfect. Job, job done. Yeah. Okay, it's uh, Poetry Corner. Oh. So, um, off you go, Pete. Say the right, question. Let me read the first line, yeah. Who's the economist that made all markets balance but felt ignored? For all his talents. That's Leon Varus, the greatest of all, said Joseph Schumpeter, who's nobody's fool. And one can see why he said what he said, for so much stuff was going on in his head. He was one of the fathers of marginalism. Yet surprisingly, he fought against individualism as he broke economics into three different parts. Pure theory, application, society at heart. He showed mathematically how markets cleared... And let's not forget his amazing beard. But back to economics and the valorous law, where demand and supply were the same jigsaw. Excess in one market meant excess elsewhere. But thanks to prices and some laissez-faire, or more likely for valorous, some tetonment, all the excess goods would soon be gone. The mass was complicated, but somehow he knew. And it was eventually proved by Gerard So here it was, general equilibrium theory that made free marketers ever so cheery. But Varus said it needed perfect competition and the economy fails this simple condition. So was his work being used and abused? Well, to be honest, it's easy to be confused. Very good. (laughs) It's a cop out at the end. Oh, well. (laughs) So do we like him? Will we have a beer with him? Yeah, I don't know. Do I like him? Well, you said yourself you'd like to collect coins. Yeah, we could talk about coins. I could talk about writing books and the difficulty of getting published. Yeah. We we could moan together. (laughs) I would say it's like the odd couple. 
Yeah. What do you like about Turgul? Do you think, do you think that would cheer him up? Yeah, cheer, we'll take that round. Yeah. And we'll just be in his flat whinging. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have a right old day. I think yeah. it would be... It'd be yeah. really nice. And that Jevons. Yeah, exactly. Look at what Menga's done yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Edgeworth. <laughs> we'll put him in a box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we could find some fun with him. If not, we'd just stroke his beard. Right. Okay. So, if we were out with him, what one question would we ask him and why? Hmm. What would we ask him? I think I'd ask him whether he still holds the same views on land. Right. He's still a Georgist. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think it still applies today? Yeah. Would Georgism help the UK housing market? Yeah. Very good point. Very good point. Good question. What would you ask him? Well, I mean, I suppose the follow-up would be is, is, you know, would he be happy that the brewers discovered, I would assume he would have been, a fellow Frenchman? Yeah, you know, in in that respects, you know, would he be disappointed of his legacy? I mean, in many respects, I think his, le- his legacy is probably. Well, you say that, than... but what I'm saying is, like, when we normally do Economist, you can look through loads of books, and you will yeah. find stuff on people. Yeah. And Valerius has to, I uh, have to admit, he gets clumped in, doesn't he, with the marginalists, yeah. and is not really spoken about in his own right. And I think that there is, um, you know, a, a bit about it, again, not in English. And yeah. I think that's the thing. And, and we still sort of have it, don't we? I mean, look at what we're doing in terms of, you know, still the international scene in economics. We kind of don't really think about too much. Yeah, you, you see, what is he, Tom Piketty? He's sort of... Oh, I, I know that, but he, again, he's, he speaks English. You know what you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that I'm most... I kind of probably speak English, but I still think there is this kind of move. We always want to be hearing from American and European yeah. kind of stuff, and not. I know he was European, but you know what I mean. American Inter- and English. international yeah. scholars yeah. don't really get a look in. Yeah, but there you go. What do you think about that? I remember when we were looking at the Isabel Weber book about um, sort of prices in China and so on, and. There must be loads of economists in China. Yeah, exactly. What, what do they? Yeah, I don't know any of them. No, exactly. And then I looked up the other day. I wanted. I asked GP. Or India must be. India. Well, I asked GPT chat. I said to mm. tell us who would be like the top kind of Asian economists you could look at, kind of oh. thing. And obviously, you'd get like your Sen, Sen. or whatever. But again, African economists like big long list, mm. you know, kind of thing. We wouldn't touch them really. Because we just well they're just not known they're no, just known are they? Not I mean, in, our, have to in our mainstream exactly, um, which is maybe we digress. Quite sad. So this is it, Pete. This is the end of season six. Oof. Five economists done. We've had a lot of fun. Who have we done? Can we remember? Daily Fisher. Valerius. <laughs> Who are the other two? Oh, isn't it awful? That's just us getting old, isn't it? Mm. We're a bit like Bowers, you know, in that respect. <laughs> so there you go. What are we doing next time? We're going to have a little thing, aren't we? We're going to come yeah. back with a special. Yeah. Uh, uh, Shakespeare-related. Don't want to give too yeah. much away. And we think we're going to start with Minsky for season seven, yeah, aren't we? Yeah, I think Minsky will be. And, and why not? It's all in the yeah, news, isn't it, at the moment? It certainly is, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. So... You know, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening and, um, you know, hope you will listen to our next uh, podcast. 
whether it's a special or an economist. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank Nick, who gives us technical advice with regarding podcasts. And remember to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon. Yeah. Okay, at Economics in 10. Okay, and you can contact us by email at economicsin10 at gmail.com. And if our book ever gets published. Yeah, you can buy a copy. We'd love you to support yeah. us. And do review us on iTunes. We love reviews, yeah. yeah. Good, Good or, or bad. bad. <laughs> <laughs> we just want to be noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs>